Hello, welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and today we're continuing our conversation with Al Miller. This will be part three of our interview. Uh, Al is a local farmer. He is co-owner of Brooks Bend Farm in Montague, and he is a furniture maker, an, a published author, and uh, a poet, and He's also a Vietnam veteran. So Al's been speaking publicly for over 25 years about the lessons he's learned um, from the war. Mm. Welcome back. Thank you Thank for coming back. My pleasure, Marcy. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. Uh, OK, so in part one, we kind of set the stage and talked about your early life, your life in your family, the dynamics in your family, and kind of what led up to you getting drafted and going to war. Mm. And then in part two, we heard some of the very big events that happened to you in the war and uh, sort of some description of, of how that felt, you know, just what that was like, what that was about. But I didn't want to stop there. Um, I know, I've known you now for quite a few years, and what I see is such a positivity, such a, a way that you have taken these pretty horrific experiences you've had and how they have been transformed, transforming. It's a constant process. Um, and how it really touches all the things you do. You know, even a, hmm. a conversation, your artistry, your furniture making, your hmm. farming, um, and certainly your writing. Hmm. So I kind of wanted to focus on that, those things today. Nice. and. Um, I think I want to start by asking, you have mentioned to me that when you came back and you were, you know, married and whatever, living your life, that there was a numbness that you um, really couldn't feel. And mm. some of that related back even as far as your childhood and what the modeling was with your parents. but. I was just kind of wondering, is there some, you know, time or, or moments or a, when, when that started to change, when you felt like the ice was melting away a little bit and that you were beginning to feel? Mm. Wow, thanks, you know, for the questions. Uh, time has its own impact on. Yeah all of our stories and all of our memories. But um, I have this memory of coming back to uh, the mother of my children, Maggie and Ben's mother, Nishi, and asking her what it was like, because I can remember being an active dreamer, uh, having nightmares actively mm. in the early part of our marriage, even yeah. into the mid-'80s. 
And um, so I asked her what it was like. And she said, well, it was pretty, you know, frightening for her at first. Yeah. And, um, she's, and I said, well, did it ever abate at all? And she said, yes, when our daughter Maggie mm. was born. And I don't know if we, we I've said that to you. Yeah. In recent. That's, that's so okay. the impact of, you know, having these little uh, creatures, mm -hmm. perfect uh, little people in your care and stuff, um, is very much a, a different focus. Yeah. And um, in you know the richness that they brought really was kind of a you know. An, a, an opposing weight on the scale. Yeah. You know, it's a great um, image. Yeah. You know, it just helped, um, you know, create a different um, priority. Yeah. And, it, and, and still, you know, the war came back and in and out of, of our lives together. Mm -hmm. um, and we continue to talk about that. My children, who are, you know, 40 and 36. Yeah. So we continue to talk about that, and I just went to the Vietnam Memorial mm. in, in the spring with them. And, oh. um, that was tremendous. Was that the first time you've been there with them? As adults, um, yeah, I may have been there when they were really young, mm -hmm. after it had just opened. Yeah, yeah. But they were, yeah, they came as adults, and which created an entirely different. A context for all of us. Yeah. Right. Sure. So, uh, especially now they have children. Well, at least yeah, Maggie does. Has, Maggie does. And, yeah, and children of her own. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, something else, uh, and I wanted to, and it may have escaped me for the moment, um, but you know, I, there was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and being down there was uh, being in D.C. is a place where I fasted for a long time. Yeah. For reconciliation with Vietnam, and they came to see me when I was there. Can you tell us about that? Sure. That long fast that you did. Yeah, sure. Um, if some friends of mine, John Shushart, Katashoni, uh, and Claire, had, mm, and, from uh, the Peace Pagoda, from the Peace Pagoda, had gone back to Vietnam in 1987 with George Moiseau. Um, okay, you had gone back to Vietnam with them. I didn't. Okay, they went back. They went back. Okay. And they came back with these stories of, you know, the embargo um, mm. left Vietnam in a very um, poor condition. No medicines, wow. no antibiotics, no um, pain meds, and just empty pharmacies and hospitals. Hmm. Pharmacies and hospitals were in, and we had, America had an embargo in place against Vietnam. Um, and uh, the people who traded with the United States were kind of under that same influence that if you, you know, are trading with us, you can't trade with the Vietnamese. Okay. So it really, really did a lot of harm on the elderly, the youngest, and the sure. sickest, of course. Yeah. So they came back and related their stories. And I was at a a period of time where I was starting to go to uh, therapy in Springfield uh, mm. in one of the vet outreach centers. Okay. And um, so this idea of trying to heal from the um, mm -hmm. participation in war 
I was very active for me. And uh, it, in my meditations about that, yeah. uh, it was like, so how, if you participate in a conflict with others, yeah. can you isolate yourself and saying, I'm going to heal from it, heal from it, excuse right. my... Yeah, um, <laughs> Missouri. Missouri addiction. <laughs> um, if, if I'm going to strategize for myself in isolation to do that, yeah. how realistic is that? Is that really the kind of depth wow. of healing that uh, could support change? Uh, and it didn't seem to me that it could in isolation. Right. That sure. How can I move through that? And um, I talked to Katashoni about that. and. Uh, he said, well, you should go back to Vietnam and see, meet the people in Vietnam as people, not as, yeah. you know, somebody you feared and suspected as your enemy. Sure. And, kind and, of to rehumanize yeah. all of the dehumanization that had been in your training before. Yeah. And, yeah, even allow maybe that rehumanization to come yeah. up within. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a great idea, and I asked him about doing a fast because I was struggling with, you know, having killed people yeah. closely, sure. and um, I just was having this dream that repeated, and uh, in it, you know, I was being hunted mm. as a, someone who killed people. Wow! And um, I didn't, and then when I woke from that dream, I just felt like. Mm. Um, my soul was in jeopardy. Yeah. So what can I do to make the strongest statement uh, about uh, my feelings about war and about reconciliation with Vietnam? Yeah. No, and, and yeah. So that I could go forward. And uh, fast was the only way that I felt like I could make the strength of statement that I that I felt like I needed to mm -hmm. and that I wanted to make yeah. and uh, was non-harming to any others. Sure. Um, and uh, so we talked about that, uh, Katoshoni and I, yeah. and I told him I thought I wanted to do a fast. And he said, well, you should go first to Vietnam. Wow. So I went back to Vietnam, and I couldn't go back empty-handed. Now you went by yourself or in a well, group? I, I started looking for trips. Yeah. Uh, and somebody said, check Asia Resource Center. Okay. And Don Luce uh, was a, is a man who had worked in Vietnam for 13 years and spoke Vietnamese and went first time as, the first time as a Catholic worker or something. And then he ended up being um, a, a news reporter hmm. and uh, worked even in Hanoi and um, during the war. Yeah because he was expelled by the South Vietnamese government for supporting students. He, he was teaching agriculture in wow. the, the South, and, and he was you know, he was not, not helping yeah. <laughs> students organize themselves. Okay. And that was uh, seen as being a little too political. Yeah. Uh, so Don was taking trips back to Vietnam, and uh, they had one going you know, the next summer after I got this idea in midwinter. So I asked Don if I could go with the Asia Resource, and Sally Benson was his co-director, and they were going together. He said, sure. And I said, I want to take medical supplies with yeah. me if I can. And he said, okay. 
So we have about 14 people on the trip, and I'll tell them they can only bring one piece of luggage. Yeah. So that we can each take a box and not be Oh, those freight. were the old days when yeah. you could bring more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I did that, and we raised money and resources for about 700 pounds of medicines. Wow. And took those back and distributed them from Hanoi to Saigon as we traveled the country. And, um, you know, we went into the orthopedic, major orthopedic hospital in the north in Hanoi, and they came, they said, come on in. Uh, we just walked in, um, took us right into the wards, and there were open wounds from fractures, compound fractures and gosh. stuff, and they didn't have any way to treat it. Oh, my gosh. And so the um, head surgeon walked up to this person that had a compound fracture, and I mean, you could see it. And uh, he said, this person just brought antibiotics, and so we can treat you. Yeah. And in Vietnam, the whole family's there. Yeah. You know, uh, together. Sure. So it was kind of a, you know, a celebration. Yeah. Our, our person is going to get well. You know, wow, just it's change. like coming full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it, you know, Don really provided, and he had the connections when the government was slow about making these opportunities available to us. Mm -hmm. He said, okay, we'll just call the women's union. Hmm. And the women's union would you know, show up with vans that they'd been given from Japan and say, get in the van, let's go. Wow. You know, there was no red tape. Yeah. And we'd drive into hospitals and they'd walk in the doors and say, this person's here to give you stuff. And, you know, then the tea would come out. And, yeah. And we walked into the OBGYN mm. hospital in Saigon and they were uh, average like 100 Plus, I want to say 120 births a day oh without pain meds and without antibiotics yeah. and have had a better infant mortality rate than Washington, D.C. You the mean, oh, really? In Vietnam and without <laughs> medicine. And met the director and the co-director. And it was a very powerful moment. They were in a, uh, a board meeting. Walked in, the women's union explained who we were and what we were doing, and they just... Phew, stopped everything and said, okay, come on in. Wow. And um, the co-director still touches me. Yeah. So she came across the room to hug me, and it was cross-gender, yeah. which is kind of a social taboo. Right. So she came a long ways. Wow. And she said, I understand what it means for you to be here. Oh, my gosh. She said, I'm a soldier, too. I, I performed surgeries in the tunnels of Coochie for 10 years. And all we had was coconut water wow. to sanitize ourselves because it was um, neutral. Oh, so, my gosh. So, you know, it was just the antidote sure. for yeah. um, this other emotional mm -hmm. you know, to be met in that way and to be received Absolutely. that way. And I had uh, had another trip in 91 where I met a colonel who was shot in the same action that I was shot in. Hmm. And we ended up showing each other scars. Yeah. And then walking the full length of a conference room in Hanoi, a table, so that we could reach each other and hug each other. Wow. Yeah, it's just stunning. Yeah. That the humanity 
kind of override exactly um, the uh, dehumanization of yes. the other in a in a heartbeat, and feel you know the bones and the mm. you know the body of this very human being. Yeah, and, um, and it, it's not fun. even just on a subtle level. It's not. It's also like you probably saved lives with the medicines that you brought. And, Probably, you know, yeah. just know. help to physically turn it around, not just on so many levels. It's it's really beautiful story. Well, you you I know that you understand that you know taking medicine is giving medicine to yourself. Yes, you know that's absolutely true. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was it was really good for me to do that. And then I came back and fast chose to fast start on my birthday, which was mm. 20 years after the war. And I was shot on the 25th of August in Vietnam. Yeah. But it um, would have been the 24th in the United States by international by the International Day Line. Sure. And the 24th was my birthday, is wow. my birthday. So I started on that and plotted 40 days. And, 40 days. And that ended on Gandhi's birthday, October oh, 2nd. God. So beautiful. And did you get a lot of, mm. uh, you know, did people witness, did people, did, was it in the news, did it create any kind of an awareness that was on a bigger scale? Some, but it, uh, but it, was, um, it was really ignored by the D.C. press uh -huh. and the major newspapers. I can imagine that, yeah. Yeah, the... Um, do you know um, Charlie Litke and George Mizell, Brian Wilson, and uh, you know. oh, Brian Wilson's name I know. Yeah, they had fasted on uh, Capitol steps to stop uh, the funding okay. for the Contras in '87. Okay. And so it had had a big impact, and uh, the funding was stopped. But they fasted beyond 40 days. They went 45 days and were committed to going to the end. And, um, and then I think con Congress um, agreed to stop the funding. Hmm. And so they broke their fast. So what was that like, fasting for 40 days? Did it feel like a cleansing of some sort? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, it... Um, yeah, I ended up at like 138 pounds, so it was it was a you know yeah. radical shift, and it yeah. took me I'd say almost two years to recover. Wow! To get all the way back. Yeah. But um, it just felt like um, I, I can't say necessarily it was a good thing for me to do, but it's, I felt I felt oh, really compelled to do absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. And. Um, Things came out of it that, you know, continued in my life. Yeah. Um, and there were the 30 days into it, I really took an assessment of why I was there. Yeah. You know, and probably did that more than that. But this, this period, really, this time, 30 days in, really stuck with me. And, and uh, I was asking for, you know, ideas about why. What's this about? Yeah. And what I heard was uh, I'd never really been emotionally available to my family mm -hmm. because of that first question you asked about yeah, the, numbness. the numbness. 
And so then, you know, I took that in and realized that I really wasn't emotionally available mm. to my children and their mother and decided that I really wanted to make a change mm. and kept that in my mind and thought about what does it mean to have emotional currency to be wow. current. Uh, and I definitely didn't know how to do that. So <laughs> I started trying to acquire yeah. those skills. That's really exactly the kind of thing I was thinking about <laughs> when I thought of that first question. Oh. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I have... I'd have to say that I had tremendous help from all kinds of people. Veterans at the yeah. Outreach Center in Springfield, Dick Bonneau, was extraordinary for me. Now, when did you move to the Valley? In 1983. 83, okay. Yeah, to study furniture making in yeah. Um, yeah. East Hampton. And, um, and your relationship with Kata Shonen, the head monk of the yeah. Peace Pagoda? Yeah. That started back then? Yeah, you know, I I saw that in the newspapers that these monks were building this peace pagoda mm -hmm. in Leverett, and I knew I should be there. Yeah. But, but because of what had happened in Vietnam and what I had done, yeah. I was afraid mm. that they could see that all over me and not. Yeah. And, you know. They wouldn't want you. They wouldn't want me. And so, uh, you know, I've talked through the back channels of people I knew who were right. there. Yeah. And about, you know, what would that be like if I came up there? And they said, oh, they would love it you know, <laughs> for a Vietnam vet to come. Absolutely. It would be. Yeah. Well, and I thought, it took me a while. I didn't get there until 87. Yeah. And then, you know, this relationship just evolved. And continues to evolve. And it continues. So yeah. the segue between the Peace Pagoda and the furniture making yeah, is okay. those beautiful doors that you carved mm. um, that are on the, the, you know, the front of the temple, the mm. new temple. Mm. Um, so what's your relationship to wood and working with the wood? Yeah, you know, it, you know, trees, I think, are really significant in my mm -hmm. life as a, as a boy growing up in a rural country, yeah. having trees that, you know, I climbed and trees that were significant characters yeah. in my childhood, huh. specific trees um, that were, you know, just marked different events and different times and different things. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there was a point after Vietnam where I really needed and wanted to learn to make some, do something yeah. constructive. Yeah. You know, and with my hands. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I started out doing these real mundane welds in a uh, hmm. cart welding shop. And then I found a job in a uh, cabinet shop. Huh. And then I learned everything that they did in a couple of years. And one of my brothers was starting to repair antiques, take them apart and put them back together. And then from that, he was learning how to build them, mm -hmm. furniture. And so I started, you know, watching what he was doing and imitating mm -hmm. him. Yeah. And then we, we had a business in Utah oh. together building furniture. Wow. In the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. 
And I wanted to study with someone who knew more than I did. Yeah. So I looked for a kind of an apprenticeship, the old European style. Mm -hmm. And David Powell was offering that in mm. East Hampton. Wow. So we moved cross country so that I could do that. We being? Yeah, my kids and their mom, Nisha. Really? Yeah, oh, the whole mom. family oh. came? Yeah. For okay. Nine years we stayed. Wow. And did you live in East Hampton? First? Yeah, we stayed in East Hampton. Yeah. Yeah, and she uh, worked in Northampton at a rehab facility. She wow. was a nurse. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is so interesting. I've never imagined that part of your life in this part of, you know, in, mm. in this area. I've always thought of them being mm. in the West somewhere, you know. Oh, so, yeah. So that's, that's interesting for me to put your, your ex-wife here. In, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we don't have a lot of time please. for this. Yeah. Um, do you want to end with one poem? Sure. Um, and then we're going to continue again, part four. Okay. Well, um, I don't know. Um, so writing was always, I was writing down things in all of that period. Yeah. Notes about the war, notes about, you know, trying to make poetry out of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, the early work is the early work. Right. Um, and, but it's the base, you know. Where sure. You, where you lay down and you correct yourself and you try to learn more and stuff. And then in this last year, um, this poem that refers to an incident in Vietnam War, in the Vietnam War, won the Pat Schneider Poetry Contest. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's just called David. Okay. And I, I was grateful to learn that in uh, Hebrew, David means beloved. Mm. And um, so that fit the sentiment for me that's in this poem. So I'll just read it. Okay. And then we can talk about it. David, I don't remember clouds or the color of the sky, the sound of birds, who his father might have been the significant trees in his life as a child, the way he ran to go home at the end of a day, the things he passed that told him who and where he was, or if he had known the loyalties of a dog. When I think of him, I say David, though I never heard his name. When we found him, you couldn't tell if he was Asian, Anglo, or African not as if anything was equal. I, know, I don't know if he'd ever known the unity of a ball game. I think he might have been Chinese-American from California. I wondered if his grandfather had ever taken him fishing. We wrapped him in a poncho that would protect him from the rain, tied the poncho to a bamboo pole, and carried him as if we were all going home that night in a pilgrimage of the bewildered. I regret the way we dropped him to the ground near morning, brushing one palm against the other as though we were finished. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Wow.
I don't even know what to say. <laughs> that is just amazing, just so beautiful and powerful. The imagery, I'm right there. Um, so, mm. we're going to stop for now. Okay. Thank you all for joining us. We are going to continue with part four of this interview with Al Miller next time. Thank you so much.